this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Ellie Ben Sassoon and Uri Kolodny from Starkware. This is a project I've been watching for quite some time. And thank you to the folks at Dragonfly, Hasib. Thank you for the introduction on this one. was really looking forward to talking to the folks here. We talked a lot about zero-knowledge proofs. And so Starkware solves the inherent problems of blockchains, scalability, and privacy. So we talked about the trilemma as it relates to that. We talked about decentralization. We talked about Starkware's cryptographic proofs that are succinct, transparent, and post-quantum secure. So we had a lot of conversations about this concept of post-quantum secureness. And so, as many people know, back about two months ago, Google announced that their researchers claimed to have achieved a milestone known as quantum supremacy. So we talked about how this relates to the idea that quantum could break some of the encryption that blockchains use um, and possibly also not only just break them but create better encryption so we had a really good conversation about that and then we continue to talk more about how zero knowledge proofs are done in stark and starkware um, and so this was a great conversation about privacy about zero knowledge proofs about some things that are highly technical as it relates to zero knowledge proofs so it gets a little technical don't worry about it though it's really important to know and understand so please remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice, so please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear a great conversation with Ellie and Uri from Starkware. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Ellie Bensasan and Uri Kolodny with me today from Starkware. This is a project, like many that I have on the show, that I have had my eyes on for quite some time because we're going to be talking a lot about things like zero-knowledge proofs. This is something where I constantly, every single few weeks, find myself immersed in trying to study and restudy and understand. It is a very, very interesting piece of technology that started many years ago uh, in more academic uh, uh, places, and now it is becoming more of a commercialized uh, technological innovation. So as most people know who listen to my show, I like to get a little bit of background on the founders or the people that we have on to find out what they did before they started their company or their project. And what was their kind of aha moment? Um, some people call it the Bitcoin origin moment. Some people call it the awakening moment. So Ellie, if you could let us know uh, a little bit about yourself before Starkware and when that moment was and what inspired you. Okay, so uh, first, uh, thanks, David, for having us on the show. Um, so my background is in theoretical computer science, which is a very mathy uh, sub-area of computer science, and I've been um, doing research related to proofs uh, since uh, the mid-'90s, and then things a little bit more related to uh, um, the kind of proofs that we ended up developing starting around uh, 2001. My Bitcoin aha moment was in 2013 when I attended the Bitcoin uh, conference in San Jose and it dawned on me quite by surprise that uh, this uh, theoretical, mostly theoretical stuff that I've been doing um, back then has some applications to uh, cryptocurrencies. That certainly changed my life ever since. 
And uh, yeah, that's a very abbreviated version of my uh, life. Um, so my background, um, I've been an entrepreneur for the past, uh, I guess, 20 years, uh, way back, uh, Ellie and I, and a couple of other folks on the team here, we were together in the uh, Israeli intelligence, and then we're undergrads together studying computer science uh, way back. Um, and my uh, aha moment came in uh, the fall of 2017. Mm-hmm. Ellie and I have been close friends for uh, many, many years, and Ellie said, uh, you know, Look! Look at this thing. Um, you know, maybe we should uh, consider starting a company around this stuff. And uh, I spent a week uh, just sort of uh, reading up and listening to talks about uh, about blockchains. And uh, it was a bit of a revelation. I mean, the, the understanding that uh, that there is a means of, of removing trusted parties from the equation. That sort of age-old problems that I remember from our days as undergrads, like the, Byzantine generals problem uh, have now uh, some some clever crypto economic means of of uh, resolving them. Uh, that was an eye opener. Right. So getting into Starkware, Starkware solves the inherent problems of blockchains, uh, scalability and privacy specifically. And I want to get your opinion, Talik. Uh, talks about the trilemma. He talks about speed, scale, and decentralization. And I don't see you mentioning that as an inherent problem. If it is, please let me know. But if it's not, let me know why. Well, the the um, the, the approach we're taking at the moment um, is to offer a scalability engine for various uh, application or platform operators. So, so the first system we'll be deploying is uh, our scalability engine to power Diversify, which is a, uh, a spin-off out of Bitfinex, a cryptocurrency uh, exchange that will support non-custodial trading at scale. Uh, now, this exchange is uh, doing the, uh, it owns the customer, it does the, the matching of, of trades, and we power their operations in the background. Um, so in a sense, this is a, a centralized entity within a very you know, densely populated space of exchanges and trading. Um, and in that sense, uh, we haven't solved yet the, the, the broad and uh, challenging uh, task of decentralizing in a perfect sense. Um, but we have offered uh, many other benefits uh, along the way. And so I'd love to hear your opinion on DAOs as 2020 seems to be the, the, the year of the DAO in many people's minds, but we'll get to that in a little while. Um, I want to get into the nuts and bolts of Starkware. So Starkware's cryptographic proofs are zero knowledge, succinct, transparent, and post-quantum secure. So we're going to talk about each one of those. So zero knowledge proofs are cryptographic protocols between two parties, a prover and verifier, in which the prover can convince the verifier about the validity of a statement without leaking any extra information beyond that fact and the statement and making the statement is true. Um, and so We've had a few people try to talk about zero knowledge proofs on the show before, and I know it's a little bit one on one. And um, you know, obviously, with your extensive backgrounds in the space, it could be a little uh, laborious to do this again. But I think it really benefits people because a lot of people have been looking at zero knowledge proofs as a way to solve some of the problems of blockchains. So, if you could, you know, break it down to us, you know, imagine you're talking to someone who is not as technically sophisticated as you both. 
you know, give us a somehow an example, a metaphor, an analogy of a zero knowledge proof and how it would work. And then I would love to get your opinions. You know, as I mentioned, the onset zero knowledge proofs have gone from the academic, and that was you know the work of Goldwasser and others, to more of a commercialized technology. How has that how has that all happened? And you know, in what time length has that happened? Yeah. So. Um... Regarding a good analogy to think about without needing to go into math, um, the example I often give is that of a grocery receipt. So a grocery receipt is something we're all familiar with, or a restaurant receipt, right? Um, it's this uh, string of characters that proves to us that that you know the total sum we're supposed to spend or to pay is correct, and it is a proof. It's a very um, powerful kind of proof and it's you know it in various forms has been around for millennia um, the way you verify the proof is basically rerun the computation you know you sum the items up and see that you got the right value so the functionality that these cryptographic proofs give you um, is the same functionality of a grocery receipt but on steroids in several respects one is the privacy preserving aspect of it uh, the thing that's called zero knowledge which means that you could think of this grocery receipt where some of the items or steps are blinded and nevertheless you are just as, as sure that the output is correct, that you need to pay this total sum. Which if you think a little bit about it, you know, you would start to have doubts. You know, I didn't see all the steps of the computation, so how do I know that I'm not being cheated? So that's one magical aspect of these proofs. The other magical aspect of these proofs is this uh, notion of scalability, which is even more mind-blowing. And it says that as you scale up the amount of computation that you're attesting to, so suppose you're summing up not two items, but a thousand or a million, the amount of time you need to spend in order to verify that the total sum is correct doesn't grow linearly with, with that number, but it grows exponentially smaller. So, you know, if you took you one second to verify the correctness of, of uh, you know, a thousand items being summed up, it will take you only two seconds to do the same thing for a million items. And it will take you only three seconds to do the same for a billion items. So each time you grow up the scale or the batch size or the number of trades you're settling by another factor 10, you're only adding, let's say, one second to the amount of computation you need to do. So those are the two magical aspects of zero-knowledge proofs. Um, one is privacy. The other one is scalability. And uh, you can think of them, again, as these grocery receipts on steroids. Now, regarding the uh, progress of research, so in hindsight, it's, it's, it's a common theme that the time it takes uh, you know, for stuff to go from you know, the very first invention or conception let's say, you know, the zero knowledge initial paper in 1985 and the few follow-ups that came, you know, by the early 90s that were very theoretical. Um, it takes about three decades for stuff to go from, you know, the head of some brilliant researchers and, and become deployed technology. And uh, in the area of, uh, of, of proof systems, what you saw is a lot of theoretical advancement, you know, mathematical research that advanced it. So a lot of the stuff that my peers, co-founders, collaborators, and I have been doing over the past, let's say, 10 or 15 years has been about making things more concretely efficient. 
And uh, at some point, about five to seven years ago, you started seeing deployment of, of systems. And, and at first they were academic, and then over time they became more and more industrial. And now we're experiencing this sort of Cambrian explosion, this proliferation and diversification of techniques and proof systems over the past uh, six months or so. And it's, of course, a very exciting time to uh, operate in. So I, there's going to be a question that leads into another factor. So you talked about the scale. And you talked about starting from 10 to going to a million to a billion. And so there's a question that I want to ask there relating to what you have built in terms of being an asymmetric protocol. Um, but I want you to agree or disagree with this first. Um, I read a statement out there that zero-knowledge protocols are still notoriously hard to scale for large statements, which you just started to allude to due to a particularly high overhead. And if you, you can explain that a little bit more, I think you started to, but when they say a particularly high overhead, I'm curious what that means because from traditional finance people, that means something else to someone who might be doing more mathematical computations. I'm generating the proof. For most systems, this is primarily because the prover has to provide a large number of cryptographic operations, such as an elliptic curve group. So do you agree with that or disagree? So I, I, in the context of Starks, which is uh, the type of technology that we are building, I disagree for the reason that um, we do use cryptographic operations, but very simple ones and very you know, future-proof and battle-tested ones. In particular, uh, the Starks we're building make no use of any elliptic curve cryptography. They don't use any number theoretic assumptions. This is part of what makes them post-quantum secure. So in our case, uh, the cryptography that we're using is not that heavy. We are using things like hash functions. Um, now, in terms of the overhead, so first of all, um, being able to generate a proof costs more than, than not generating a proof and just trusting the other or having the other party trust you. So it stands to reason that you know, generating proofs is going to cost something. When we started this research, or when this research was started, maybe even by others, um, you know, for every step of computation, generating a proof for it was, uh, I don't know, 10 to the 6 times uh, more work, or 10 to the 8, or even larger numbers. Um, part of the research that uh, my co-founders, collaborators, others around the world, and I have been, have been doing over the past uh, two decades or so, has brought this down. We're very proud to say that at Starkware right now, we're, for all the computations we're checking, we have roughly an overhead of uh, 100, meaning that uh, the time needed to generate a proof is roughly you know, 100 times more computationally um, uh, demanding than actually running the computation naively. And, and this 100x <coughs> can actually be parallelized, so it's not the 100x lag time. So um, you and do maybe, pay a little maybe bit. Maybe to, to put this in perspective, this number, a couple of years ago, uh, this number was uh, a factor of 10,000. So it, it has come down by two orders of magnitude by a factor of 100. So as I alluded to, you know, Stark is an asymmetric protocol. The verifier's work is exponentially smaller. We're talking about that. By conducting the prover's work off-chain and verifying it on-chain, we allow blockchains to massively scale without requiring any trust assumptions. I would love you to kind of give us, I think people have talked about transactions per second, they've talked about throughput, they've tried to index, they've tried to create relative kind of value metrics. 
you know, Visa does this, so, you know, Bitcoin should do that. What does massively scale in a distributed and decentralized, you know, system and a protocol that, you know, for instance, you guys are, are on, you know, on the precipice of building? Um, in my opinion, in, in, let me try to, uh, to define this conceptually as opposed to putting out uh, numbers, which, of course, will come obsolete very quickly. So one, one uh, definition of, uh, of uh, these tools becoming massively scalable is, in my opinion, when, um, well, what, what, we've see, what we see today happening, which uh, I think of this as sort of a, a flippening in the context of zero-knowledge proofs as the tool for scalability. And the flippening relates to the, uh, whether the uh, blockchain itself is a limiting factor or whether the limiting factors elsewhere. And when we started out, uh, the blockchain itself was very much a limiting factor in terms of determining the throughput of systems that are scaled with zero knowledge proofs. Now, um, thanks to uh, very hard engineering work on our end, and we've also shepherded through EIP 2028, which has sort of become the, the cornerstone of, of Istanbul, the most recent Ethereum hard fork. Uh, at this point, uh, on-chain resources are no longer uh, a limiting factor in terms of uh, scalability engines. And, and the, the, the limiting factor now is the magnitude and the complexity of the IT setup you can build in the cloud to, to generate proofs. Um, and that, to, to me, that is a, a massive, massive step forward. And I think one that a couple of years ago seemed completely imaginary. Um, so, so that this is one definition of, of sort of achieving massive scalability, sort of conceptually. The other one I, I would uh, define in sort of uh, sociological terms, and I think massive scalability is reached when developers, when coming up with new applications, don't give the scale of the network a second thought. Right. So, uh, developers of, of applications over the web today never stop and think, you know, can can the network uh, support? Uh, almost never. Uh, can the network support the, the, the requirements that my application is going to present? Uh, developers for blockchains today think about this nonstop. In fact, I think it's probably the only thing they think about. They think about it so hard that most of them stay home or do something else. Uh, and I think that the moment that the tools become so abundant and so simple to use that developers will, for the most part, just assume that the blockchain, the blockchain can scale to their needs, that I think would define success in terms of massive scalability. Got it. Um, so as I mentioned, Starkware's proofs are zero knowledge, the thing transparent and post quantum secure. So I want to touch on this post quantum secure part. So there has been a multitude of debate. Uh, I've heard this from institutional investors. I've heard this from VCs. I've heard this from lots of different people that once quantum computing becomes the average, the the median, what everyone seems to be using, that a lot of the encryption that blockchains are using will become null and void. And so in October, researchers from Google claimed to have achieved a milestone known as quantum supremacy. They created the first quantum computer that could perform a calculation that is impossible for a standard computer. Um, and so as I mentioned, with regards to SHA-2 and the family there, like SHA-256, and other methodologies, could they be broken by quantum? And you know, what's the relevance here as it relates to Stark? 
That's a great question. First thing is that uh, actually if tomorrow there's a quantum computer, you know, that, that, that can operate a large scale, this is really great news for the kind of uh, Starks that we're building because they are plausibly post-quantum secure. In particular, uh, while a lot of the other systems out there that are based on number theoretic assumptions would be broken by efficient quantum computers, um, the same is not known to hold for uh, Starks. So for us, and Starkware in particular, it would be tremendous good news. Um, I do want to comment that, um, yeah, no, no, I mean, that's that's basically our short answer, that, that our systems are plausibly, they're, they're not just more efficient in terms of proving time, and they're not just more future-proof in terms of being you know, based on leaner and, and more battle-tested cryptographic assumptions, they are also um, post-quantum secure. Could I, from the perspective of your background, could quantum not only break SHA-2 classes and others out there, could it also create more and better encryption for blockchains as well, Tim? That's another terrific question. I just want to correct uh, something. So quantum computers uh, don't really break SHA-2. They break uh, RSA, they break, uh, you know, elliptic curve cryptography, but they don't really break SHA-2 or SHA-3. So some, some primitives uh, do remain uh, pretty much, uh, you know, unscathed by them. Um, now, quantum computers do, or, you know, quantum technology or quantum physics does offer a lot of benefits for um, more secure communication. And also, there's a very intriguing line of recent research uh, in theoretical computer science, which is not yet practical, but, but it shows that the sort of class of problems that you could potentially solve if uh, your verifier was, uh, you know, quantum, had a quantum computer. So this class of, of problems is exponentially more powerful even than the class of problems that you could solve uh, if you don't have quantum power. So I'm giving a strong positive answer to your question. You asked, could it be that quantum computers not only break stuff, but also allow new good stuff? The answer is a very strong yes. They allow for new cryptographic, uh, sorry, not cryptographic, but new secure communication methods. And within the world of proof systems, first of all, you have systems like Starks that do not get broken by them, but even more interesting is that there's uh, a whole class of, of new uh, problems that cannot be solved by classical verifiers, and, and now you have access to um, with, with uh, quantum ones. Those interested in with some kind of uh, mathematical background should look up this complexity call, class called MIP star. MIP stands for multi-prover interactive proofs, and the star stands for you know quantum endowed ones. And they are a very hot topic in, in, in you know, theoretical computer science these days. Awesome. Going to have to check that out and trying to obviously make myself feel dumb again. Um, so one of the things I also want to talk on, there's uh, two more things I want to talk on. I want to hear about Stark Pay as it relates to Lightning. But the other thing I want to talk about, um, the zero-knowledge component of Stark allows for the shielding of private inputs without compromising computational integrity. We talked about that. Private information can be kept off-chain while verified on-chain. So as you know, this has been a topic of conversation with Monero and with Beam and some of the other things like Grin. How does this how does Starkware and how does Stark relate to Bitcoin, which is synonymous? 
you know, what are the differences there? And also, I'd love to hear your opinion as we're talking about 2020 and many people are talking about adoption. I would love for you to opine on this. You know, my opinion is that there is a drug out there and the drug is free and Google and Instagram and Facebook all provide us that drug on a daily basis. It's a dopamine rush. Um, basically, you know, we are on these platforms, they're free. Um, and while they're free, we are the product. And so how do we, you know, how does that, how do we break that chain um, for people to start using and start caring about privacy? So the first question, obviously, you know, as relates to Bitcoin and Stark, talk to us about the differences uh, as regards to privacy and shielding. And then, you know, how do we break this chain of the free uh, so people want to uh, use privacy-based platforms? Okay, so um, Starks can can be built to be zero knowledge and, and provide all the privacy that you need and you currently get by other, um, you know, systems like uh, the Groth 16 Snark or Bulletproofs or, you know, by other means. So you could potentially rep re replace them with, with uh, ZK Starks. Um, that would have a lot of benefits, you know, the post-quantum quantum security we just discussed, prover time would probably speed up by a factor of 10 or more, uh, verifier time would go down um, as well, and uh, you could uh, deal with arbitrary scale computation more easily. So it's a good thing to move to, these, to this technology in, in the future, and, and I hope these, uh, all these systems out there, you know, replace their current technologies with, with ZK Starks in the future. Um, that's about this topic. So you could, uh, you know, just answer that question. You could uh, replace uh, Bulletproofs or, or uh, the Gross 16 Snarks or whatnot with uh, Starks. And I think you'll get a more robust, uh, secure and faster system. Um, and we of course support that. Uh, uh, but that's a decision to be made by these various other, uh, you know, layer one protocols um, that, that are out there. Um, Regarding the bigger question of, you know, privacy within society and how do you break this, uh, um, this uh, you know, this, this model where you have a few very large companies to, to which everyone is giving all their data. Um, of course, technologies like ours can help there. But, uh, you know, honestly, it's a much bigger uh, task than, than, than or a trend than, than what uh, Starkware alone can, can deliver. It's really a question about, you know, regulation, societal norms, things like that. Uh, uh, if one is optimistic, one would say that blockchains and this movement towards a more transparent and uh, inclusively accountable system would uh, lead people to demand, um, you know, more ownership of their information and less uh, moving it over and passing it over to these large entities. Um, but, uh, you know, that's so, and technology like ours can definitely help with that. But it's a ultimately sort of a societal government and, you know, business decision that's way bigger than, 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 than you know, than the power that we currently Right. An interesting conversation to have uh, continuing going to 2020. So the last thing I want to talk about is the differences between or the differences in Stark Pay to Lightning. Um, so if you could tell us about Stark Pay um, and how it compares or contrasts to Lightning. So um, I think the simplest way to think of Stark Pay is um, in terms of something we all know from everyday life, which is a debit card. 
rechargeable debit card uh, that we use. Uh, so StarkPay, setting up an account on StarkPay is essentially that. You, you can uh, deposit funds into your account and then you can start paying others and uh, others can send money to you. Um, and this service wouldn't be operated by, by some payment processor. Um, and it can achieve uh, the, the you know, scale in, in terms of uh, throughput. We're talking about many thousands of payments per second that can be processed this way. Now, when comparing to a system like Lightning, uh, the question is, well, for, first of all, you know, there's, there's the uh, current state of affairs with Lightning. I think that about a year, maybe 18 months ago, there was a lot of hope uh, that Lightning would solve the scalability uh, problems of, of Bitcoin. In practice, I think uh, it's been sort of underwhelming. And it's been underwhelming because uh, people have sort of seen very practical limitations in terms of the amounts that they can transfer across the network. And the fact that uh, when transferring from Alice to Bob, if they don't have a direct channel, uh, there need to be you know, multiple hops that, that are pre-funded to an extent that can support the payment between them. Um, so so the, these are very limiting uh, factors and they're, uh, they, they present uh, capital requirements, or phrased differently, they, they are very capital inefficient in terms of operating the system. And the, the, these inefficiencies can then be routed across the network. Uh, some of the Lightning folks, I think, uh, as you often see with engineers, think of this as a very clever sort of solution to the, to the problem at hand. In my opinion, uh, this is a very undesirable property of uh, of a payment system that the uh, amount of traffic on the network increases as a function of the value transferred. So if you're transferring a million dollars and you now need to break this down into a thousand packets of a thousand dollars, instead of just sending one payment of a million dollars, then then what you have on your hands is a system that won't scale. Interesting. And, uh, if Elizabeth Stark is listening, happy to have you on the show. I've tried to for the last year. So if you want to come on and rebut that, <laughs> happy to. Um, but uh, this is a definitely a very interesting conversation, one that I think a lot of people were learning about, you know, obviously real world implications and how people will actually start using these things, uh, I think is a real emphasis going forward into 2020. Um, so very interested on that and loving to hear more about that going forward. Uh, there's so much more to talk about, but as the time is wrapping up, as most people know on my show, I like to get a little bit of a sense about our guests on a personal level, um, not necessarily your favorite sports team or what that may be, but two things that we typically put into our brains, hopefully on a daily or weekly basis. Uh, any books that you have read recently over the last few weeks or months that really resonated with you, uh, and any music that you listen to, whether working or traveling, things that get you inspired, things that help you through the day. So any books that you've read and any music that you listen to? I'm, uh, I just finished uh, The Dark Forest, which is the second in the series of, uh, you know, The Three-Body Problem. It's kind of intriguing. Uh, you know, sci-fi from uh, by uh, Liu Sixin. I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. Um, and this podcast I'm listening to right now, which is highly recommended and really mind-blowing, is... Uh, uh, it's been going on for a while, but I only heard of it recently. It's a hardcore history by Dan Carlin. I'm listening now to, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, missile crisis, uh, history, you know, with Cuba, 
very interesting and inspiring. It gives you a proportion on kind of, you know, epic dilemmas and struggles that uh, humanity went through uh, that are much bigger than the ones we're confronting these days. Very interesting. Um, uh, on my end, I, uh, I sort of stick strictly to fiction. But um, I, I just, I'd be, I never read any sort of, sort of uh, work-related stuff in my, in my free time. Um, and um, I, you know, I read recently uh, short stories by uh, this uh, wonderful Russian author called Sergei Dovlatov, who immigrated to the U.S. in the 80s, I think, and passed away at a very young age, uh, shortly thereafter and he writes about Soviet Russia in, in, in a funny and depressing way. So that's uh, in terms of what I'm reading uh, or what I just read and uh, in terms of music I just tried uh, to listen to a whole bunch of things so Spotify would define me as uh, genre fluid at the end of the year. And that, that was one of the biggest compliments I ever got from Spotify. Genre fluid. Yes. So yeah. So uh, That's a first. Jazz and uh, that's their term. I, I, unfortunately, they came up with it. So <laughs> jazz and rap and rock and uh, anything I can and the classical music. And I think that's going to have to be my new Twitter profile. I'm genre fluid. I love it. Uh, no, no you, you have you have to earn it first. <laughs> um, the last thing that we like to do with our guests is provide them a way for people to learn more. Um, if there's a place where they can learn more about Starkware, if there is a place they can start playing with things, if anything is ready to start playing with, or they can get involved with your community, please let them know. Sure. So we uh, can follow us on Twitter. Um, it's at Starkware LTD. And of course, our website, uh, starkware.co. And uh, from there, you can link to our medium blog posts. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them uh, that uh, I think folks may find of interest. Amazing. So this was a great conversation with uh, the folks from Starkware. Uh, this again, a project that I've been keeping my eyes on for quite some time and I can keep going on and on uh, talking about zero knowledge proofs and the, the intricacies there, but I uh, want to make sure that people focus and learn a little bit about you guys and get excited as uh, a lot of people are in the investment community. So please remember to check them out and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on in 2020, see how things are going and the progress is going and we'll be catching you soon. Take care. Thank you, David. Thank you for having us on. For more notes from this past episode about our guests, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.